Hi, this is David Shoemaker, and I'd like to welcome you to Living Thelema. This month's segment is going to cover Liber Summic and the invocation of the Holy Guardian Angel. Now, I want to begin by strongly suggesting that you go back and listen to the earlier Living Thelema segment covering the Holy Guardian Angel uh, specifically. And uh, I think you'll find that that lays a groundwork of pretty important preparatory understanding of the nature of the HGA and of the relationship between the aspirant and the HGA as that gradually develops um, typically across the first order grades of AA, but certainly whatever system you're using, there's going to be a gradually building relationship. And um, that particular segment of Living Thelema, I think, will really prepare you for what we're going to talk about today. Now, I want to begin with uh, a question that came through on Facebook, and the question was from Mark, and he said, in your episode on the HGA, you say to invoke often. Is there a specific invocation ritual? And uh, thank you for the question, Mark. The main point that is central to discussing this at all is that the process of um, gradually moving toward the, the culminating invocation of the Holy Guardian Angel is so personalized, so individualistic, that there is, uh, there's no way anyone else could hand you um, the ritual that's going to be your ritual. It's going to be likely very, very customized. Um, you're going to be gathering tools and suggestions and rituals and all sorts of inner symbolic uh, elements very personalized, very unique to you, um, across the developing relationship with the angel over the years before you even approach knowledge and conversation. So by the time you get there, by the time it's time to really go in for the, the, uh, the final working or set of workings, um, you're generally going to have a very good idea of the tools necessary and these may be based on things like Liber Samic and Liber 8, which is an extraction of the uh, vision of the eighth aether or the vision in the voice. Um, but these are going to be these are going to be skeletons for you. They're not going to uh, most likely they're not going to be um, verbatim instructions that are maximized for your personal use. Now, let me just give a final answer to uh, Mark in terms of the invoke often injunction, as I mentioned in the previous uh, podcast on the HGA. Now, this is uh, something Crowley urges us to do. And I, I think uh, when I said that in the earlier podcast, what I was really getting at there, um, rather than a specific uh, formal ritual, was just the the uh, ongoing inflaming of oneself in prayer to the angel in any way that works for you. Um, any invocation of that light of the angel in, in whatever form that takes is what I was talking about. And certainly at, at phases of the work, that's going to be a formal ritual, but not always. The really important thing is just the ongoing day-to-day, moment-to-moment work in keeping yourself aspiring and earnestly invoking the light of the angel as you may know how and as you will be instructed, in fact. Um, so, I've already mentioned Liber Samic uh, in answering that question, and um, that's going to be our main focus today. 
Uh, I love this ritual. I love Crowley's discussion of this ritual almost as much, if not more, than, than anything else he ever wrote along the lines of practical instruction. Um, and the reason for that is that not only is it a, a beautifully laid out ritual, um, but his commentary, and in particular the scolion uh, that accompanies it, is some of the most lucid and informative and practically useful discussion of the inner work of ritual that Crowley ever wrote. Um, there's so much in there about the uh, the visualizations and the the way to throw yourself into each of the component parts of the ritual. It's so rich and and so well explained that I can't recommend it highly enough. So um, I strongly recommend that you study Liber Summic and its commentary and Liber Eight um, thoroughly and repeatedly in reference to this matter and in reference to the discussion we're going to have today. You, you can't spend too much time on those rituals, I promise you. And links to those are going to be on the podcast blog. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with this ritual, um, it was composed by Crowley at Chefalu for the use of Frank Bennett, Frater Progradur, in his own invocation of the Holy Guardian Angel. So, this is an excellent example of what Crowley might have handed to a student, in fact did hand to a student, um, for th this particular work. Um, we get insights into Crowley's own approach. Uh, we get uh, discussions of the nature of the HGA and the relationship of the uh, angel to the adept. And as I said earlier, we get these insights into Crowley's own methods of teaching the inner work that goes along with the skeleton of the ritual itself. Really, really valuable. So uh, here's a brief overview of the ritual. Um, it begins with an invocation, which is an adaptation of the preliminary invocation of the Goetia. And um, one of the interesting things about this um, is the way that the language changes from the initial invocation to the one at the very end of the ritual from language of thee and thou and clearly identifying as a separate um, adept invoking or you know in relationship to the angel whereas at the end it is clear that the desired goal and the result is um, the attainment of union uh, or at least the momentary um, apprehension of that union with the angel in the consciousness of the adept. As I've said in other podcasts, even when knowledge and conversation is successfully accomplished, this is a marriage that takes work, just like any other marriage, and uh, that's the work of the adept uh, after knowledge and conversation to increase the intimacy with the angel and maintain it as, as tightly and as completely as possible. But that's a side point. Um, so we have an initial invocation to the angel, and um, then the sort of the guts of the ritual is um, a simultaneous, a sequential but simultaneous um, invoking of all four elements and then crowning that with spirit. Now by simultaneous and sequential, what I mean is that in the ritual as it's laid out, these are sequential invocations at the quarters, much like in the lesser ritual, the pentagram, etc. Um, but... Um, the net effect when the ritual is completed is that you have simultaneously, by use of the ritual, invoked all four elements and um, 
crowned them with spirit. Now remember that um, the whole process of the first order of AA below to Fareth, as as I've mentioned before, is creating oneself as a suitable temple for the indwelling of the angel. And this ritual is uh, like a recapitulation of the work that would have been done in the AA leading up to the working of the knowledge and conversation uh, ritual proper. So it's like a full and final performance of what has been gradually accomplished over the years um, via a fourfold equilibration of elements crowned by spirit. So you'll see within the ritual, the magician goes to each of the quarters uh, sequentially and makes some invoking pentagrams and does uh, some barbarous names, as they're called, um, that are keyed to the nature of that quarter and the nature of that um, aspect of self. And uh, the, the real key here is at this stage in the ritual is that you are throwing yourself as, as vividly and as intensely as possible into identification with the element invoked. This is probably a good general recommendation for any ritual, of course, but it's more important here than anywhere else I've encountered. Uh, Crowley even talks about this in his commentary as, as, uh, in, in reference to how uh, intense the ritual is and how... Uh, how challenging it is to maintain the kind of concentration and intensity of focus um, that this ritual demands. But at each quarter, you throw yourself into it as, as strongly as you possibly can, identify with that element as strongly as you possibly can. Then when you come back to the center, you have to do the very same thing in terms of fullness of identification, but you are doing it with the element of spirit itself, the uh, the HGA itself, the aspiration to the HGA, the receptiveness to the HGA. Um, the climax of this ritual is one of those examples of um, juxtaposition of opposites in ritual that amplifies the effect of the ritual. There is um, an, sort of an infinite upward active extension of self that's followed by a complete inward contraction, um, as Crowley says in the, the commentary, almost a hiding from the angel within the innermost citadel of self, I think is the term he uses. Um, and it is this, uh, this polarity and the, the alternation of, these, of the identification with these poles that kind of vaults the self beyond the opposites into something else altogether. And, and this is the climactic uh, upward surge of sparks of, of self that uh, completes the ritual uh, and, and affects a union with the angel and consciousness. Another example of that polarity being used um, to amplify the effect is in Liber uh, Pyramidos, um, where you see that at the negative confession at the altar, where there is this alternation between um, the uh, the aspirant um, naming themselves all these negative qualities, balanced with uh, saying they're under the shadow of the wings uh, in a in a positive sense, and so there's this back and forth, back and forth, rapidly that uh, is actually kind of a hypnotic technique, um, 
a formal hypnotic technique that uh, is effective. So that's here as well in Libra Samic. Let me read to you what Crowley says in the commentary corresponding to section F of the ritual. He says, The adept now returns to the Tefereth square of his Tau and invokes spirit, facing toward Beleskin by the active pentagrams, the sigil called the Mark of the Beast, and the signs of LVX. He then vibrates the names, extending his will in the same way as before, but vertically upward. At the same time, he expands the source of that will, the secret symbol of self, both about him and below, as if to affirm that self, duplex as is its form, reluctant to acquiesce in its failure to coincide with the sphere of meat. Let him now imagine, at the last word, that the head of his will, where his consciousness is fixed, opens its fissure, the Brahmaranda Chakra, at the junction of the cranial sutures, and exudes a drop of clear crystalline dew, and that this pearl is his soul, a virgin offering to his angel, pressed forth from his being by the intensity of his aspiration. Now, this is a, a perfect example of what I was saying earlier about the way Crowley's describing the inner work of this ritual, giving you really these uh, beautiful images of how to conceptualize what you're doing and how to how to feel your way through it, really, really experientially um, enriching it. So that was the active and expressive uh, extension of self and the offering of self that I was referring to before. Now, what we're about to see is that's balanced by the uh, the withdrawal and the sort of the receptive phase of this. And so I'm going to read at length from Crowley's commentary on this because there is there's so much in here that that's not just relating to the ritual, but to the very um, um, it speaks to the very nature of of the angel and of the relationship between adept and angel. This corresponds to section G of the ritual. The adept, though withdrawn, shall have maintained the extension of his symbol. He now repeats the signs as before, save that he makes the passive invoking pentagram of spirit. He concentrates his consciousness within his twin symbol of self and endeavors to send it to sleep. But if the operation be performed properly, his angel shall have accepted the offering of dew and seized with fervor upon the extended symbol of will toward himself. Then shall he shake vehemently with vibrations of love reverberating with the words of the section, even in the physical ears of the adept there shall resound an echo thereof. Yet he shall not be able to describe it. It shall seem both louder than thunder and softer than the whisper of the night wind. It shall at once be inarticulate and mean more than he hath ever heard. Now let him strive with all the strength of his soul to withstand the will of his angel, concealing himself in the closest cell of the citadel of consciousness. Let him consecrate himself to resist the assault of the voice and the vibration until his consciousness faint away into nothing. For if there abide unabsorbed even one single atom of the false ego, that atom should stain the virginity of the true self and profane the oath. Then that atom should be so inflamed by the approach of the angel that it should overwhelm the rest of the mind, tyrannize over it, and become an insane despot to the total ruin of the realm. But all being dead to sense... Who then is able to strive against the angel? He, he shall intensify the stress of his spirit, so that his loyal legions of lion serpents leap from the ambush, awakening the adept to witness their will and sweep him with them in their enthusiasm, so that he consciously partakes this purpose. 
and sees in its simplicity the solution of all his perplexities. Thus, then, shall the adept be aware that he is being swept away through the column of his will symbol, and that his angel is indeed himself, with intimacy so intense as to become identity, and that not in a single ego, but in every unconscious element that shares in that manifold uprush. This rapture is accompanied by a tempest of brilliant light, almost always, and also in many cases by an outburst of sound, stupendous and sublime in all cases, though its character may vary within wide limits. The spate of stars shoots from the head of the will symbol and is scattered over the sky in glittering galaxies. This dispersion destroys the concentration of the adept, whose mind cannot master such multiplicity of majesty. As a rule, he simply sinks stunned into normality, to recall nothing of his experience but a vague, though vivid, impression of complete release and ineffable rapture. Repetition fortifies him to realize the nature of his attainment, and his angel, the link once made, frequents him, and trains him subtly to be sensitive to his holy presence and persuasion. But it may occur, especially after repeated success, that the adept is not flung back into his mortality by the explosion of the star spate, but identified with one particular lion serpent, continuing consciousness thereof until it finds its proper place in space, when its secret self flowers forth as a truth, which the adept may then take back to earth with him. This is but a side issue. The main purpose of the ritual is to establish the relation of the subconscious self with the angel in such a way that the adept is aware that his angel is the unity which expresses the sum of the elements of that self, that his normal consciousness contains alien enemies introduced by the accidents of environment, and that his knowledge and conversation of his holy guardian angel destroys all doubts and delusions, confers all blessings, teaches all truth, and contains all delights. But it is important that the adept should not rest in mere and expressible realization of his rapture, but rouse himself to make the relation submit to analysis, to render it in rational terms, and thereby enlighten his mind and heart in a sense as superior to fanatical enthusiasm as Beethoven's music is to West African war drums. Now, setting aside the obvious ethnocentrism of that last remark in terms of Beethoven and war drums, um, I think what Crowley's getting at there is that knowledge and conversation, once attained, is of little use if the only effect it has is to inflame the adept and inspire spiritual ecstasy. That's certainly a useful uh, aspect of it and an important tool for further work, but you have to do something with that knowledge. You have to find a way to consciously transmute this ineffable experience into rational terms, as Crowley says, so that your work in the world can be informed and enlivened and enriched by your experience. You go out into the world a changed person, a changed adept, and you bring with you that truth of experience attained through knowledge and conversation. But you can't do that if you don't refine your ability to make that translation between the ineffable and the rationally expressible. Now, having reached the climax of this ritual and uh, attained, at least momentarily, the consciousness of union with, with the angel, the ritual proceeds to the closing, which is called the attainment, 
And here is what I was referencing earlier, where the, the language is now of identity with the angel. Uh, and then this is a brief section, so I'll go ahead and read it verbatim as well. Um, but you'll note the difference. There's no thee or thou here. I am he, the bornless spirit, having sight in the feet, strong in the immortal fire. I am he, the truth. I am he, who hate that evil should be wrought in the world. I am he, that lighteneth and thundereth. I am he, from whom is the shower of the life of earth. I am he, whose mouth ever flameth. I am he, the begetter and manifester unto the light. I am he, the grace of the worlds. The heart girt with a serpent is my name. So a beautiful closing for the ritual. I hope you agree that uh, the the reading from Samek, the lengthy reading, was, was worth it. I, I just think the language is so beautiful there uh, and so instructive. And one final very important performance note about Liber Samek. It is clear from the instructions that this ritual is to be performed in the body of light. That is... It is performed in the astral body of, of the magician rather than um, simply performed physically as we might do in our daily rituals. Now, in order to learn this ritual, you're almost certainly going to need to practice it physically, um, actually moving to the quarters and actually doing the, the following through the instructions in terms of uh, postures and uh, giving pentagrams and things like that. But uh, once mastered physically, it is, in my estimation, very important to actually perform this uh, in the body of light, partly because that astral substance of self is the, uh, the medium of communication of the Ruach, and, and that's going to be ultimately the language of symbol through which the angel expresses itself. Uh, but also, frankly, the muscles that you build from repeated performance of this ritual in the body of light in terms of magical muscles uh, are going to be so broadly useful um, in any number of endeavors that there's a great benefit uh, in that way as well. So um, let's move on to some, some other practical points in terms of constructing and implementing a retirement for knowledge and conversation. Those of you familiar with some classical sources on this, uh, the Abramelin working and, and such, uh, the classical you know, version of that, are aware that uh, typically there would be an expectation of um, almost complete solitude for months and months at a time, um, a very specifically constructed temple um, in which to perform this work. One of Crowley's great gifts to modern magicians, of course, was an understanding that um, that there needs to be a way to progress down the path of attainment and still function in the world. Most of us don't have the luxury of being independently wealthy, withdrawing from the world without having to work for months, and, say, buying a Boleskine house in order to perform uh, the working. Um, we need to be a little more practical than that. So um, if you read Liber Samek and Liber 8, it's not hard to imagine a way to um, hybridize these practices and integrate them into your day-to-day -day life. Uh, at least for a time before moving into a full and formal retirement with an actual, you know, withdrawal into solitude. Um, Liber Samek is designed to be performed over 11 months. Uh, Liber 8 is written as a 91-day retirement um, or working. Again, if you 
compare and contrast these and, and work out something that fits in your schedule, you can easily imagine um, doing something where you might have a preparatory period of several weeks or months with gradually building intensity of performance. It might go from once a day to twice a day to four times a day, etc., building up gradually week to week until finally at, at the climax, you might spend a week in complete retirement or a month if you can. Um, but it's, it's doable. It really is doable. I've seen it work for people who have, have you know, a job and a life and a family and such, and, and they, uh, they find a way to, to work it out. So it's doable. When you get to the final retirement, the actual withdrawal from society, so to speak, it's really, really helpful if you have an assistant, as you might imagine. Um, this could be someone who uh, can bring food, can handle emergencies, um, can be there to respond to any requests that you that you have if you need something from the outside, such as, uh, oh, I don't know, more candles, something like that. You've got someone to run those errands for you, and you don't have to leave the retirement to uh, to go into the outer world to to do it. But you should, uh, I'd suggest you avoid any direct or even visual contact with this assistant. Uh, communicate through notes if you need to. Um, Try not to be in the same space at the same time. You can make arrangements to um, make sure you miss each other. Um, now, um, a purpose-built temple, of course, is ideal for this. Few of us have that luxury, but uh, um, you may find also that if your regular temple that you're thinking of using for this is actually, say, a room in your normal dwelling place, you may find that that's a bit distracting. Um it, as you can imagine, if you're in retirement in this room in your house, meanwhile, on the other side of a thin door, your family's running around and kids are yelling and, and things like that, um, that may not feel very much like a retirement. So I do urge you to um, find a separate dwelling of some kind, maybe a retreat center, maybe a cabin in the woods, maybe a, a friend has a, a spare room that's in a separate building or something like that that you can use. Um, but listen, if you get too worried about these details, just stop yourself for a moment and remember that, for example, Carl Germer attained knowledge and conversation while in the concentration camp with nothing in the way of conventional magical tools or a temple, nothing of the sort based on his pure aspiration. So all of these trappings of the invocation of the angel, all of the elaborate descriptions you see in Libra 8 in terms of the preparation of the space and the materials, they certainly enhance the work. But they're ultimately just tools. It's the inner work, of course, that is pivotally important here. If you persist in this work, if you persist in invoking often and inflaming yourself in prayer to the angel, if you listen for the communication of the tools and the ritual forms that the angel is attempting to communicate to you as you build yourself towards the ultimate uh, knowledge and conversation working, you will succeed. Persistence, as I've said in many contexts, is 95% of the work. I've never seen anyone persist in this system and not succeed. All the stories I've seen that involve failure consist of someone who quit doing the work in one form or another, 
maybe they actually stopped doing daily practices, maybe they, they gave up on the path, or maybe they got distracted by things and didn't uh, balance themselves by following the system, and so they got off track. But no one I've seen has ever persisted in the work as it is laid out by, by Crowley in the system of the AA and failed. So please take that as uh, one more pep talk from me in terms of your own persistence and uh, hope that that persistence will bring you the result that you seek. So I hope you've enjoyed this segment, and um, I do once more encourage you to study thoroughly in Libra Samak and Libra 8 as you continue your own studies. Um, please send me, as always, your comments and suggestions to livingthelema at me.com and visit the livingthelema.com website as well for, uh, for more information and resources. Thanks for listening, and I will talk to you next time.